I want you to do me a favor. Yeah, sure. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. What? Let it out. I want you to hit me. Trust me. Come on. Come on. Stop trying to hit me and hit me. Hit me, baby, one more time. And now, our feature presentation. Welcome to Hit Me One More Time, the Nostalgia Reflection Podcast, where we look at the things that we loved when we were younger and ask the question, is this good? I'm David Luzader. Normally, this is the part where I introduce Nick Shermooksness, but he had to go do something like get married today. So, you know, congratulations, Nick, I guess. And uh, that means that I had to pull in the man, our 90s Batman correspondent, who desperately tried to get out of this episode, but I trapped him into being here, Mr. Phil Rude. Phil, welcome back to the show. Thank you, David, and congratulations, Nick. Oh, great. He's going to get like a big ego now. Thinking all well, I, I'm really just happier for myself that I get to be back on the show. So, um, you yeah. know, it's, it's really selfishly motivated. Yeah, when you heard that we were doing Batman Forever, you... you oh, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to jump on this. <laughs> oh, well, we have somebody here who brought Batman Forever to the show. Our guest this week, it is Mal Foster of Dimed Out. Mal, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, guys. And, and apologies in advance to everybody uh, having to suffer through this particular Batman film. Oh, I think it's going to be worth it for the discussion. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. At least there's a silver yeah, line. I think so, for sure. Now, Mal, for people who might not be familiar with Dimed Out, uh, what is that all about? Ah, uh, that is the million-dollar question. It's always difficult explaining what my own show is about. Um, <laughs> essentially, it's a sort of anthropological journey. Uh, it started last year about the time COVID kind of kicked off and we were all in lockdown. It gave me an opportunity to kind of get back into doing this. I've done it before, but I didn't really have much of a purpose for a while to do it again. Uh, and that kicked it off. So it gave me an opportunity to look at things that I've always been interested in, that I've kind of known about in my peripheral, and things that I have no idea about. So yeah, as I say, it's an anthropological journey exploring just anything that kind of takes my interest, from astrology to transhumanism to psychic readings to weird internet finds. Hmm. Has there been anything yet that's like really surprised you? Like maybe when you started you thought you kind of like had an idea or maybe had like a grasp on the subject. And then once you got into it, you know, you really realize like, oh, I, this is not what I thought it was at all. A little bit. So transhumanism is one of those things that I kind of, as I said, knew about in my periphery and kind of passed it um, through maybe a Vice article at one point, And it kind of was like, oh, OK, that's kind of interesting. And then kind of digging into that even further and seeing what people have been doing on their own in terms of biohacking, which is its own interesting thing. If you've no idea what that is, that's definitely a good Google uh, rabbit hole to fall down. But also what is actually right, legitimately on the cusp of, of happening and things that are really sort of almost Philip K. Dick-esque, which you wouldn't think are possible, but are actually kind of in motion. So yeah, that was kind of eye-opening. Hmm. Well, very cool. People should definitely wow. go check that out. As we mentioned earlier, Mal, you brought our subject this week, and that subject is Batman Forever. Yeah. Yeah. This was, uh, this was, because uh, thinking about it, when, when I was thinking, what could I bring? And I wanted to bring something that was like a definitive moment 
in my childhood. And for me, this was one of them because Jurassic Park was probably the first block. This is going to age me terribly. Jurassic Park was probably the first blockbuster I saw, but that was something I was just taken to. This was the first thing I was really kind of anticipating as a kid, like weeks beforehand. So I thought, yeah, that's perfect. Jurassic Park is a movie that I, I refuse to do a podcast on. I've said this a bunch off mic, I think, but I haven't said it on mic. But like, I have nothing new to add about Jurassic Park. If anybody came to this show and was like, I want to do Jurassic Park, I would, I would have to say no, because like, <laughs> of course it holds up. It's Jurassic Park. Yeah. What, what do yeah, I have to no say? no mystery about it. Yeah, yeah. What do I have to say about it that hasn't already been said? But uh, we'll, I, I will get more into this movie here in, in just a sec. We got to get through all our histories. You gave us a, a taste there, Mal. But mm-hmm. Batman, this time played by Val Kilmer, takes on Two-Face and the Riddler as they terrorize Gotham. He also struggles with his own dual identity when he meets Chase Meridian, and he has to deal with a petulant teenager in his early 20s named Dick Grayson, who winds up in Bruce Wayne's care after his family dies. Now, you gave us a little bit of a taste. You said this was a movie that as a kid, it was kind of the first one that you had like a lot of anticipation for. What was your reaction to it as a kid? And then like kind of since then... When was the last time you watched? Like, have you watched it much? Maybe since you were young. Oh my goodness! Um, I was trying to think about this when I was watching it earlier this week. When was it I actually last saw this? It's got to be at least fifteen plus years ago. So I have seen it since I first watched it as a kid. Um, but I couldn't remember how it held up back then. Going back to when I was a kid and and watching this for the first time, as I said, yeah, there was a lot of anticipation. This was a, a film where you would see it advertised on TV, like in little short snippets, little short teaser trailers. I think they had an endorsement deal with Burger King in the UK as well, or something like that. Maybe I'm remembering that wrong. But it was one of those things where it was just like, okay, this looks amazing. And I hadn't really been privy to Batman at that point. I was 10 when this came out. So I didn't catch the 89 Burton film didn't really have any understanding of the 60s show, didn't really know about the comics, maybe had seen some of the animated series a little bit here and there. Um, And a friend of mine who lived on the street tried to show me Batman Returns at one point before, but it was a little bit too (laughs) dark and intense for my younger self. Uh, So this was, strangely enough, my first Batman film and yeah, seeing, as I say, the hype for it on TV and the, the promotional stuff, I was like, I don't really know who this character is, but this looks amazing <laughs> and I'm really excited for it. And it really did kind of match up that hype and anticipation as a kid. Yeah, I think now that, now that you're saying all this, because I'm a little bit younger than you, it sounds like it. I think this was also my first Batman movie. I, I probably watched the animated show. Like I remember watching that a bunch as a kid, but I don't remember when probably before this but i don't remember having seen the 89 film when i was a kid and i don't remember seeing batman returns so i think also yeah this was the first one for me and there was a deal here i don't know what it was in the uk and here at mcdonald's i remember they had like these glassware sets and i remember like needed to have those glassware sets that had the riddler and two-face on them and i'm I'm sure my mom probably still has them somewhere in a box (laughs) i should go dig those up Uh, but also sort of similar where I, I remember attitude towards this film as I got older, you know, really like soured and um, also towards like the sequel to it. So 
as a as a teenager and then like getting into like an early adult and you know now full adulthood it was always like why would you watch that movie again that movie sucked mm. um so hadn't really revisited it at all discovered in this watch that i remembered much less than i like was i thought i would have i remembered much more about batman and robin surprisingly when we did that on here um, but not really like a very strong history with this film all out uh phil what about you uh this was far from my first batman experience but um uh as you know we we talk i feel like this comes up every time we do a show david about how much older i am than you and i just walk <laughs> hey, you're away bringing feeling, it up not me <laughs> where are my reading glasses and pills and i'm i'm just very confused all the time now this movie came out i was 20 years old um i was in the military at the time and the way new movies come into video work in the military is any room you walk into in your barracks, it is playing. It is like everybody is watching it. They're either passing it around or everybody's renting it at the same time. It's just sort of like this shared experience almost. So I saw this movie a ton when it was like first to home video. And it was one of those things I just was kind of like, I dig Batman. I, I like it. Uh, this movie is fine. Like Val <laughs> Kilmer's a weird choice. Um, and, and I just, I, this movie just kind of existed. I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. It was just sort of like a forgettable movie to me. And then I, I just moved on basically. Um, I could not tell you the last time I saw it, but there was a pocket in probably the late nineties where I saw this movie a ton and then I may have, I don't remember, I may have shown it to my kids when in, that would have been like the early when you were When you were punishing them for something? When we were, uh, well, when they were, you know, uh, three, four, five years old, an age that would think this movie is colorful and crazy and cool. Mm. Uh, you know, I feel like this is like aimed at little kids, but it's still like a little dark for them. Uh, but you know, it was superhero stuff. And I would, you know, I think we walked, worked through all the 90s Batman movies when I was, uh, when my kids were small. So that was probably the last time I saw it. And like you, I did, man, I forgot just what a train wreck this movie is. <laughs> I just remember this movie is kind of existing. And it was always in my head that like, uh, Batman and Robin is the worst of the '90s Batman movies, and I don't know that it is it's, anymore. And now oh, I'm like, "Ooh, this yeah. is." Not, I mean, don't get me wrong; that's not, that's no gem either. <laughs> but uh, at least that movie took some big swings. This movie's just just kind of boring. It's it's boring, mm -hmm. but it's trying not to be. But it's still like afraid to take too many chances. Uh, so. That was a that that was a, a weird revelation to have after after going back after all this time. Yeah, I don't want to get too much into the discussion now. Yeah, I'm going too far. No, no, no. You no, you haven't. But you've triggered things in me that like I just I have things I want yeah. to say. And I will I will say having now within the last several months having watched both Batman and Robin and this mm. Batman and Robin was was far and away a much more entertaining film. <laughs> and yeah, right. I, I had so much more fun with that than, uh, and I, we're going to have so much fun with the discussion here. I know we absolutely will. But in watching the movie, Batman and Robin, I was like, this is so stupid. 
but I, I can get into it. I can get into how stupid it is where this, and I think you're right. And we're going to dive way more into it. This was just at times so boring, but yes. before we get too lost in our discussion, we've gone over our personal histories with the topic. Phil, can you tell us a bit about the world's history with Batman forever? I can. Despite the success of Batman Returns in 1992, Warner Brothers felt the movie did not meet expectations and blamed the dark tone, feeling that it was inappropriate for children, and McDonald's had refused to carry toys for the film. Warner Brothers asked Tim Burton to step down as director, and several others were considered, including Sam Raimi, until Joel Schumacher was chosen at Burton's recommendation. Originally, the idea was to incorporate elements of the comic series Batman Year One, but WB wanted a sequel and not a prequel. Burton lost interest in the film as it went through rewrites to focus on Ed Wood. Production was fast-tracked with Rene Russo cast as Chase Meridian opposite Michael Keaton, who dropped out early in the production when he was unhappy with the film's direction. They decided to cast a younger actor in the role of Bruce Wayne Batman, and Val Kilmer signed on without reading the script. I bet he's not done that since. <laughs> or knowing who the director was. Russo was dropped as being too old to pair with Kilmer, and Nicole Kidman was cast. Tommy Lee Jones was reluctant to take the role of Two-Face, but did so at his son's insistence. Many actors got close to to taking the Riddler role before Jim Carrey got the role, including Robin Williams, who resented Warner Brothers for using him as bait to get Nicholson to take the role as the Joker. And he chose Jumanji instead. Mark Hamill, who had to drop out due to contract issues with Batman the Animated Series. Marlon Wayan had been cast as Robin and was even signed on for prequels, but Schumacher opened up casting to other actors when he took over directing. Filming saw many ego clashes between the likes of Schumacher and Kilmer, as well as Carrie and Jones. The original cut of the film was about two hours and 40 minutes long, but was cut down to two hours by release. The film was released June 16, 1995, to mostly negative reviews, but went on to gross $336 million. In the last couple of years... Some fans have started to call for the original two-hour, 40-minute cut of the film, now dubbed the Schumacher Cut. <laughs> Guys, right. please stop calling for long edits of yeah. bad movies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I, according to one of the producers or somebody who worked on this film, they said that most of the original footage still exists out there, and it, <laughs> well, I'm sure it, does. it could happen. <laughs> I'm amazed it didn't get the E.T. video game treatment and was just buried in the desert somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there was a, a movie for this or a game for this movie that I probably had. Yeah. I, I, this movie has no plot. There is no plot to this film. I can't not talk about this part. This movie, there is no plot. Batman is not chasing after Two-Face. Two-Face is terrorizing Gotham kind of whenever he wants to, and Batman is doing nothing but reacting to it. And and then, like, uh, the Riddler joins in. He's just like, oh, well, I guess I gotta deal with this, too. But he is the most passive character in this whole movie. You're talking Batman is yeah, the most Batman. passive Batman's character? Batman's the most passive character in the film. Yeah, Batman is kind of... Uh, I think it's a, it's a running theme through 
almost all the 90s Batman movies that when you really stop and look at them, he is reacting to everything. He he is almost not proactive at all. He doesn't do anything to stop crime. He only reacts to like these flamboyant sideshow kind of uh, characters who show up in town um, with themed henchmen. And it goes so far in this one that after kissing Nicole Kidman once as Batman, um, where she's like, I'm sorry, I'm in love with Bruce Wayne. He's like, great. Look, I know that Two-Face has killed a lot of people and is going to continue to do so. But I'm good. I'm done. (laughs) I'm shutting it down. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's so insane to me. It is ridiculous. You point out a good fight, and I hadn't actually considered this, but yeah, it is a very, it's very glaringly obvious now you've pulled it up. He is extremely passive, considering just like you have this notorious homicidal maniac causing so much chaos and putting so many lives at danger and taking lives. He's not doing any of his, you know, infamous detective work to find out where he could be or where he could strike next. It's just like, oh, I guess I'll just wait until he comes back again. The only any taste of detective work is when he finally has all of the Riddler's riddles, <laughs> which from a design perspective, I actually really liked yeah. the, like the props they made. Um, I thought those like those were actually pretty interesting. But then once he gets that, it's just like, OK, wait, we're going to decode this. It's Alphabet, Mr. E, Edward Nigma. Ah, yes, that's who's behind all this. And by the time he realizes that, it's like, what's the point? Who cares? What was the point of any of it? I mean, that's that's just the thesis statement for the movie. <laughs> I, I'm curious to know what has actually been left out of the original two hour, 40 <laughs> minutes. Because there is a point where it does feel, you're right, there really is no plot to this. But it feels like things are just plodding along to a certain point. And then there's a point around the midsection going into the latter third where there are so many sort of scenes attached together that really make no sense, but feel like these are just catalysts to get us to the end. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And it'd be curious to know what exactly has... I mean, I don't want to sit through a two-hour, 40-minute cut of this film, <laughs> to be honest. I, you know, I think I'm done for the rest of time now. But it would be interesting to know what was actually in there and if that actually added a sense of plot or direction or sort of character progression or something. That's a great question. 40 minutes of Dick Grayson working on that motorcycle. <laughs> or doing his martial art laundry. Oh, my God. Oh thank my you. God, yes. <laughs> laundry. I had to. I, I, I couldn't believe that scene. And like the music <laughs> that accompanied it. It seemed like a bad laundry commercial. Like it was going to be like the <laughs> detergent that's as tough as you or some <laughs> crap like that. <laughs> Dick Grayson's endorsement for Tide. I mean, it would have at least been a character at that point. Dick Grayson in this film, if Batman's the most passive, then Dick Grayson's the most pointless. Uh, (laughs) What are you talking about? He's an acrobat and a martial artist laundry guy. Let me ask ask Uh, this question. Here's an important question that the film cannot answer. How old is he? uh, 35. (laughs) But... (laughs) But he has to go live with Bruce Wayne because social services is going to care. That's right. That Yeah, that's right. He's definitely older than, than that. Cause, yeah. Because Bruce Wayne later is like, go be a college student. It's like, what? 
well, then why does social services give two shits about what he's right. doing? <laughs> because he's know. a circus person and he doesn't know how <laughs> right, to Right, there we go. The he world. didn't have a normal upbringing, so. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He needs to be <laughs> he needs to be neutered into normal society. <laughs> Everything about uh uh Dick Grayson and his the the character that they built, the things he says like my father told me every man has to go his own way. It's like, is that before your father forced you to become a traveling circus performer <laughs> because that was the family business? Or uh, did he tell you that later on um, at, while somehow holding you in this uh, in this weird uh, tribe of his? It's, a, it's such a, everything about it was just like, I'm out to kill Two-Face. No, you can't. Yeah, I'm going to. You really shouldn't. Okay. And then, and then Bruce Wayne kills Two Face. It's just, it's yes. everything is so contradictory to uh, everything that Dick Grayson is trying to accomplish in this movie. If he's trying to accomplish anything at all, I would venture. I may be that, on my own here. He, he, he's not accomplishing anything, but they're like, if he, if we make him say these things, then it'll feel like a character. It, yeah. it <laughs> seems like he has a goal, but he right. really, he really doesn't. I may be on my own here, but I actually think he was the most interesting character in the film, and and that is a stretch. And it's because he's he's a little bit more than one dimensional. He his delivery is so for me. There's two schools of delivery outside of of Dick Grayson, and that is just maniacal scenery chewing or Val Kilmer, who it's not surprising to read that he didn't read the script because <laughs> there are moments where he looks like he's waiting for a cue. For a line. He does and not want to be here. No, he doesn't. And he doesn't even know what he's filming, it looks like, at points. So you've got those two, and then in the middle you've got um, uh, Dick Grayson just being sassy and just pissy for no reason, it seems. And I was like, this is actually infinitely more interesting. The teen angst is the thing that's kind of holding me together here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll give it to Chris O'Donnell. I've seen him now in two of these films, and I you know, I don't hate what he's doing here. Um, I hate everything else that's happening, but you are, you are right that there, the deliveries in this movie are so uneven from person to person that it feels like everybody is delivering lines from different movies to one yeah. another. Yes. And every, anytime he, that Val Kilmer and Nicole Kidman have a conversation, first of all, I don't think I retained any, I think it's just white noise <laughs> happened anytime those two talked. Uh, but like the way that they talk is just so different <laughs> than how the other one is is speaking. There's no like matching energy at any point. Well, let's just say I could write a hell of a paper on a grown man who dresses like a flying rodent. Bats aren't rodents, Dr. Meridian. Really? I didn't know that. You are interesting. There's no chemistry at all. No, none. This movie is full of great actors giving terrible performances of of just the worst written material. Uh, like, it's just the dumbest script. All the dialogue is just dumb. I mean, like, <laughs> it, like to a, a ridiculous level. But all these people, like Tommy Lee Jones, Nicole Kidman, Val Kilmer, these are really solid actors, you know what I mean? And it's, it's just like a shame to see them all in one place, and clearly none of them want to be here. Except for Jim Carrey, who was given free reign to do whatever he wants. Jim Carrey is the only one who understands what movie he's in. 
Yeah. Like he understands this is ridiculous and he can do whatever he wants. And the more ridiculous he is, the more he fits into this movie. I actually really like Jim Carrey in this movie because he's the only one who seems like he belongs here. I think he's with him is though, for me, it's just like, They've asked to me. It seemed like they've just asked him to be like that shtick you've been doing for right. the last couple of years. Oh, for sure. Just, just do that. Yeah. Just any ideas you've got doesn't matter. Just, uh, just, just do you do do that thing you do with the the gurning, the weird facial expressions, the, the awful one-liners. Just that. That's what we want, Jim. And action. A few bullets, a quick splash of blood, and then what? Wet hands. Post homicidal depression. He's a terrible Edward Nygma. I think as a Riddler, it's it's not a good portrayal of the Riddler. But mm. for this movie, he is the most dynamic. I mean, he is the most entertaining to watch because you're right, Phil, that he knows what this movie is. Like if you hired Jim Carrey to be Jim Carrey, he's going to give you the Jim Carrey shtick. And this is what we get. Uh, there's one line. It's not even like his weirdest line, but it's one that I could tell in all of the shots, like he improvised and they left it in is when they're at the, like the gala um, just before Two-Face comes in and holds it up. And this is after, for some reason that Edward Nigma has become the most powerful and rich man in Gotham in <laughs> overnight, in, yeah, yeah. overnight in like in scenes in between the rest of the film. And he like turns to Drew Barrymore, who was in this movie. Drew Barrymore Drew has lines. Barrymore is in this film. <laughs> He turns to her and after like delivering some lines, she's like, yes, how's my mole? How's my mole? And she's just I like, think that's hilarious. Like, okay. I really do. I think that's very funny. Yeah, but you could you could tell that was like Jim Carrey is like, okay, we've oh, done sure. 17 takes. He's just like, I'm going to throw this one in. <laughs> and it worked, sadly. I mean, they, of course, he was hired to do the Ace Ventura thing and because that's who Jim in 95, yeah. this is who Jim Carrey was. He wasn't serious actor Jim Carrey for like another three or four years, probably. So, you know, this is what everybody was throwing money at Jim Carrey to come, come, come act like a buffoon in my movie with a, with a rubber face. I mean, it was just sort of like, that's what you got him for. Mm. Uh, so it's not, it's not really surprising that he's mm. there and just turning it up to 11 in in this movie in 95 yeah you're right it was uh it was when he did that andy kaufman movie that really really broke him as a person and uh truman show i remember being like his first like real big uh not not that truman show isn't funny but it's like it's semi-serious he's playing a a real Mm -hmm. character a real person well that in that that showed us that Jim Carrey can act. And then he did the Andy yeah. Kaufman movie and was like, oh, Andy Kaufman's spirit inhabits me. And it's like, okay, Jim Carrey's gone a little off the deep end. <laughs> Went a little far, yeah. I actually began formulating an interesting, it's what I would like to call a hard sell theory. And it's that eternal sunshine of the spotless mind is the origin story to Edward Nygma. <laughs> oh, wow. Ooh. In the sense that uh, the the... The work he's had done through Luna Inc., which actually sounds like it could be a company in Gotham City, has done so much damage to his brain and the emotional trauma of losing Clementine. And then you get, if you've ever seen it, um, you'll know that it's an ambiguous ending and it's sort of implied that they're going to go through the same cycle again. That just sets off so much damage 
that he's trying to recover from that and then just fails and loses and he's his had mind. several years of having his brain erased yeah. over and over. <laughs> <laughs> to the point where he doesn't even know who he is and he makes up this name, Edward Nigma, because he's trying to solve this eternal puzzle that is uh, Clementine. And then it just leads into into this. <laughs> that's an idea I came up with while watching. Well, you just wrote a better movie. Yeah, that's right. that's way better. Because in this, <laughs> the Riddler's motivation is originally to make 3D television. Uh, <laughs> that somehow he discovers has allowed him to get... Sm- <laughs> Even trying to say it is so stupid. <laughs> it allows him to get smarter by absorbing people's brain waves that's what yeah, the film because science that's, that's sure. how it works that's right? how it works yeah yeah everyone knows this and and everybody <laughs> wants the box they want 3d tv and so he him and him and two-face are just passing back this thing that they stick on their heads back and forth to get smarter but he's not he's never displayed as actually becoming more intelligent <laughs> i don't anyway and then like at some point builds a version of it that's like that that bruce wayne is like Oh, you're doing this so you can read people's minds. And he's like, what, are you afraid to do it? And Batman's like, no. What, are you going to double dog dare me? And he does. And so and Bruce Wayne's like, well, I got to go do it now, I guess. And thinks about a bat, which leads them to realize he's Batman. <laughs> he's Batman. Yeah. yeah. He thought Obviously. about a bat. It's, yeah. it's the only explanation. <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones is acting opposite Jim Carrey most of the movie. And... What is Tommy Lee Jones doing to himself? Uh, he's he's making his son happy. His son in is in according to the backstory, you know, his son told him to and I think there's a ton of bad movies that are littered with people who took roles because their kids wanted them to. Mm. You have like Frank Langella played Skeletor in the Masters of the Universe movie. <laughs> well, he loved that role actually. He He actually did. He said it was like the most fun he's ever had. Yeah. Uh, but, but I mean, it is just sort of like, I can kind of sympathize. It's like, yeah, your kid loves Batman. Sure. You take the role and then you figure out, oh, I'm in the shitty Batman movie. <laughs> and, but no, I think, I think Tommy Lee Jones, they were like, Hey, act crazy. Like Jim's doing. And he's kind of a, uh, uh, uptight old man who didn't know how to do that. And so he's trying. He's like the uptight guy who's trying to be cool for the kids, and <laughs> he just can't pull it off. He's like, is this what you want for me to to make an ass of myself in front of all of you? <laughs> he, uh, let's see, he apparently, uh, Carrie later acknowledged that Jones was not friendly to him, to him telling him once offset during the production, uh, that uh, Tommy Lee Jones said this to Jim Carrey, I hate you. I really don't like you. I cannot sanction your buffoonery. I can, I can totally hear him saying well, that. Yeah, yeah, you can. Wow. <laughs> what a phrase as well. I cannot sanction your buffoonery. I know. I kind of want to put that on a T-shirt. Uh, yeah. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Jones's lawyers, let us know if that's an issue, because if not, that's great. That, that oh, might yeah. be a T-shirt. <laughs> 
I cannot sanction you. I think that that applies to most of the things that I've had to watch for this podcast. Is I could just use the phrase, <laughs> I cannot sanction your buffoonery and, and just move that on. Could, that could maybe be just a go-to phrase if someone suggests something that you're just like, nope, not doing that. Not <laughs> yeah. a chance I'm diving into that. Perfect. Yeah, I cannot sanction your buffoonery. Thank you, but no. <laughs> <laughs> Very kind of you, but no, no thank you. I saw on the on the note of like not having read the script that all the actors who who kind of jumped into this thing and then the recastings with the director changes and people just sort of falling into this movie. Um, and this is also going to take it to Batman and Robin. There's a documentary I saw uh, of years ago, and it's about like movies that are just uh, critically panned and just completely bomb movies. And uh, they interviewed George Clinton in the er, uh, George Clooney, not George Clinton. Uh, <laughs> George Clooney in the movie, and he, he's talking about being in Batman and Robin, and it's like you you land the role as Batman, and you tell all your friends, and you think, "Oh, this is awesome! I'm playing Batman. I'm playing this iconic character." And then you get to set, and after a couple of days, you start to realize oh, I'm in the shitty Batman. <laughs> like, I'm in the bad. Like, this isn't the cool Batman. And and you're just stuck at that point, and you just have to kind of make the best of it. And it really, I know he, like, issued a public apology for that movie and stuff like that. But I think a lot of times there's, there's actors who get into it, especially like a franchise, and you don't really know what the movie is going to be until it's all said and done or sometimes you're halfway through and you realize it and i feel like this is one of those productions that was the same way that was just sort of like people got there and realized oh uh i hate all the people i'm working with i hate the director i hate this and that and the other and and that just i can't say it enough it just keeps coming across on screen Mm -hmm. it's like famously how barry um, how Barry, <laughs> Halle Berry, <laughs> Ooh. Uh, famously Halle Berry in Catwoman, you know, she said like the script was totally different and then they made the movie and, you know, we all know about it. We all make fun of it, mm-hmm. even as those of us who had never seen it. Um, but when she signed up for the film, she thought like, okay, great. Like I'm going to make a cool Catwoman movie. And then uh, I don't, what, what more is there to say? And then she didn't. Yeah. I I have a question for both of you, actually. Do you think, because you you raise a really interesting point that Jim Carrey seems to be the only person that understands what movie he's in. Do you feel like Joel Schumacher was trying to make a credible, legit Batman movie? Yes, I think he was. And he was picked by Burton, you know, handpicked by him to do it. Um, And I, but I think, that he was trying to make. So I think the reason why this one so much comes out in the wash in this one, why this one's being so boring uh, most of the time is uh, because, um, oh, wow, he died almost almost a year ago. By the time this comes out, it'll pretty much have been like a year. So R.I.P. Joel Schumacher. Um, But I think the reason why Batman and and Robin (laughs) – for all the criticism levied against it is more fun is because that one was more his vision. Um, I mean, a lot of it was made to sell toys. Sure. But he leaned into it and he put more of his own spin out where this one was still like, there was the Tim Burton influence. Like when this movie opens um, and he's 
Val Kilmer's putting on the suit and he like the the doorway opens and the light is coming up through the grate. Like that felt very Tim Burton to me. And then you have the weird villains, the weird outfits that they're wearing. The second Batman suit where they have like the the Greek god kind of builds oh, to yeah. them and stuff yeah. like that. And that's more Schumacher, but it's fighting against no, like they're it's fighting against we don't want you to not make a Tim Burton movie. We want you to make a Tim Burton movie that we can sell toys for. And that's why I think so much of this movie just kind of like falls apart because it's 10 million studio notes all fighting against one another. Um, where the one before it and the one after it was much more like the director kind of maybe having more control from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. I, I think he was trying to carry on the the Burton thing of making it look like a cartoon, making it kind of feel like a comic book. Um, but I also am, I'm looking at Schumacher's uh, filmography right now, and this is these two Batman movies are so unlike anything he had done up to that point. He had done like Flatliners. Uh, the Lost Boys, St. Elmo's Fire, Dying Young. He did Falling Down. Uh, he did The Client. Uh, yeah, he did two John Grisham uh, legal dramas. In Like, he alternated them with these Batman movies. These are, like, dramas and, like, really dark movies. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of feel like he was trying to carry on the Burton thing because these are all in the same franchise. They're all connected. Uh, But I think he didn't quite know how to do it without going full cartoon. Um, Just just full on, like, just, all right, splash color and excessive everything. And and that's what we're going to... That's what we're going to paint this Batman movie as. And... um, and it just goes too far i think i think he was i think he was trying to make a movie in the same vein that burton had made a batman movie and just it wasn't quite his wheelhouse yeah you you kind of touch upon some of the reasons i ask about this in the first place cuz there's there's two for me very sort of contrasting tones like you say it is in terms especially of like set design costume design like production and aesthetics it really does have a very sort of cartoony comic book feel to it. I mean, there's the whole street fight with the, the glow-in-the-dark oh gang, whatever the hell that was, uh, is is very sort of indicative of just the silliness of it. But some of the filmmaking behind this is actually, it feels like he's having a legit crack at doing something here. Like, I just picked up on like a lot of sort of, a lot of Dutch angles, a lot of floating Dutch angles. Like I watched four recently, again for the first time, and I thought there was a lot of Dutch angles in that. Nothing compared to this. Um, a lot of sort of dramatic zooms and reverse dolly shots, and a lot of tight full frame um, shots and close-ups. And I'm like, okay, this is a guy who actually seems to have ideas that he's doing, and it's like he's having a legit go at this. But yet at the same time, the content of what we're seeing is just like the complete opposite. It's like, I couldn't care less or I'm not taking this seriously at all. So I was very confused. Yeah, I think part of that too, this is something that was mentioned earlier, it's just that so few of the characters have any chemistry between one another. 
Um, the the initial scene between Batman and uh, Nicole Kidman, Chase Meridian. Got that name, <laughs> Chase Meridian. <laughs> Uh, Sounds like a bank, not a person. I, yes, exactly. It's you're a Chase Meridian. We care about your finances. Uh, well, she apparently <laughs> really cares about your split personalities. Um, but like, she is immediately the second she meets Batman is like trying to seduce him. Oh but, yeah, but it's so forced. She's a predator, man. She's a sexual predator. <laughs> hey, uh, me too, Chase Meridian. Why don't you back <laughs> off a little bit? I'm here to work. Well, I wish I could say that my interest in you was purely professional. You're trying to get under my cape, Doctor? <laughs> a girl can't live by psychosis alone. It, it, but it's just so forced and awkward a little bit. Yeah. Like, he's very clearly, like, not into it. Or, again, he's in a completely different movie. <laughs> um, as Mal pointed out earlier, he's just waiting for someone to feed him his lines uh, <laughs> in order to to deliver the next one. They, they just never i never bought them as a couple and there's some scene where bruce wayne's looking at a picture of her and he's like i've never been in love before and i'm like you still haven't yeah uh, good news i think yeah, the chase meridian thing is interesting because you have the potential for a really interesting character in in a female role within this sort of universe somebody that is obviously very confident and very forward and maybe a bit too much right from the start but there's no build-up to that. There's, it's right from the get-go. The moment you meet her, she, she's very sexually aggressive. And it's like, okay, that would be an interesting character trait if we kind of get there after an, an initial introduction, if it's not just like, bam, this is who this is. Yeah. Yeah, 100% agree. She's like, and she's ready, like, on that rooftop. She will go for it with Batman on that rooftop if if he is uh, so willing. But then Jim Gordon's got to come in and and ruin everything. Oh, you mean the rooftop of police headquarters that she somehow just <laughs> right. walked right up on top of and turned the bat signal on? And and no one else, no one else comes up to see what's going on. He comes yep. in in pajamas, in pajamas. <laughs> with the trench coat on. The one cop in town. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would believe it. Uh, the way the way that everybody reacts to crime, um, as you mentioned earlier, the 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 street light or the 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 street gang. Uh, where the fight takes place entirely inside of a, a black light hallway, which that carries over into Batman and Robin, where like every section of Gotham is just lit by black lights. It's phenomenal. Um, <laughs> and it started here. And that, that it was weirdly one of the better parts of the film. It honestly was. Oh, it, it, for sure. It was weird and entertaining and the action, like the fighting was like fun to watch. Uh, and even even one of the best Batman parts because Batman comes in and says to Dick Grayson, like, what are you doing? And, and Dick Grayson's like, well, I know who you are now. And if you had just like stood up at the carnival, my family would still be alive. And, and Batman says, if Bruce Wayne could have given his life for your family, he would have. If you told two fish they weren't a circus, Bruce Wayne could have given his life to your family. He would have. And in that moment, I'm like, yes, everything you're doing right here is working. Everything else outside of this scene is a train wreck. Yeah, that 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 scene does work. That is the problem, is that none of the rest of the movie supported that scene or that idea in that scene. 
it was just all fluff outside of that. You're telling me Chase Meridian, uh, your friend in uh, finance, did not hear him say when he stood up, I'm Batman? I'm Batman, yeah. <laughs> it seemed a little obvious to me. Also, why did he think that's going to work when there's just people around him screaming? Like, his voice is just going to cut through all that noise and get to its direct target. You're asking some great questions. Yeah. I don't have an answer for you. They're just... If only this well, I mean, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think the movie's even contemplated some of them because they're steeped in logic, which is, you know, one of the many things this movie was missing. Mm-hmm. We're getting a little low on time here, and there's one thing that I, I want to make sure that I mention... Because once they were introduced, I could not get enough of either of them. And that is, as I mentioned before, Drew Barrymore plays a character named Sugar. Um, His opposite, or her opposite, is a character named Spice, played by Debbie Mazur. And they are two faces' wives? But the the, (laughs) sir. Yeah. Yeah. The the scene where they're introduced um, is when he comes back to his lair and they're like, oh, I've made you your favorite dinner tonight. And hers is like, you know, a normal, a normal, fancy, nice dinner. And then the one Spice says, it, I, I wanted to mention this just so I can put the clip of it in here, because the one that Spice mentions is... A charred heart of black boar, a side of raw donkey meat, and a sterno and grain alcohol. Straight up, baby! <laughs> <laughs> A side of raw donkey meat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the closest you get to character insight for Two-Face, is that little little niche. Oh, this movie won't shut up about how he has two personalities. <laughs> they, light, they light two cigarettes for him right before that. Oh, that's they, right, yeah. A, a cigarette that uh, Drew Barrymore lights with like a dainty little lighter. And then Debbie Mazar puts a cigar in his mouth and lights it with a, a freaking blowtorch. Blow yeah. You know, we said we said that Jim Carrey was the only one who really knew what movie he was in. No, Debbie Mazar and Drew Barrymore also <laughs> Maybe, knew what movie. Yeah, the, they're the secret weapon of of this movie. She she Drew Barrymore was surprisingly great in this role. Drew Barrymore is a good actor. I'm not saying that she's not, but this whole movie, I'm like, wow, she's actually doing a really good job with this character, and that's sad. This was kind of like right before uh, the big Drew Barrymore comeback, too. So this was he's doing a lot of like weird cable movies like Poison Ivy and stuff like that. <laughs> no, uh, not so this was kind of like right before uh, Scream, maybe like two years before Scream. And that kind of brought her back into like uh, getting more mainstream movies, uh, like a second career. Uh, so, yeah, to see her in this and I, I kind of. I don't remember if I remembered she was in this before her name came up in the credits. And then I was like, oh, yeah, oh, she's yeah, like, no, no remembrance. I, I I remembered she was one of the girlfriends, but I didn't even think she had any lines. I was like, oh, she's just like there. Uh, but they actually like uh, doing stuff like that. It, it is it weirdly stands out in this movie. Yeah, they were in a lot more of the film than I remembered Mm -hmm. or thought they were going to be when I saw their names in the credits. Is there anything else just as we're kind of winding down here before we give some final thoughts? Is there anything else anybody wanted to bring up that we haven't talked about yet? Um, I don't think so. I mean, just it's full of questions and, and, you know, not of the Riddler's persuasion, just 
Questions like why <laughs> is one I kept asking a lot. Um, just certain moments in terms of soundtrack choice. Uh, I'm not talking about that fabulous seal song. Yeah. Or, the, never, or the YouTube never one. Never ever go anywhere near throwing end. shade at that, that seal song. It's beautiful. It um, is. But the actual score for the movie is is schizophrenic, to, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. The sequence in in which Batman drives the Batmobile up the side of a wall. There's some weird oh freeform <laughs> jazz going on with just like some guy just going to town on a saxophone, and I'm just like, this does not fit. And thank at all. God, there's so many gargoyles in this city. Yeah. Um, that, and then just little bits where they try to be cute, like where they have um, the, the obvious throwback to the 60s uh, TV show with, yes. with Holy Rusty Metal. And oh, I'm just yes. Like, oh, come on. Holy Rusted Metal, Batman! Huh? Holy Rusted Metal. I know what you're doing, Batman. but it's just like, mm, it's not working. I, I'm glad you mentioned that one. I, I had that written down as well. Uh, there are, you're right, so many questions. Like, is Edward Nigma cutting his hair? and then growing it back every night? Who knows? <laughs> Phil, did you have anything? I mean, I have so many notes of stuff we haven't even touched on, but it's, it's how life goes. But do you have anything, I Phil? mean, we could pick this thing apart all day and night, but um, yeah, I think the 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 holy rusted metal and uh, Mal, what you said earlier about like all the Dutch angles and, yeah. and weird like tracking shots, that's all straight out of like Batman 66, like the the Adam West TV show is always like the theme gang and just the silly, the silly criminals, the, the theme gangs and stuff like that. Uh, the thugs and the goons that all are in uniform. Uh, just that in the sixties, it was a little less uh, leather club uh, kind <laughs> of uh, stuff. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, that fall, I mean, I think Schumacher took that stuff and was like, like I said earlier, the Burton thing, and he's also taken sixty six because, uh, you know, he was an older guy, and that's probably his Batman yeah. reference point. And then he just like put a little darker edge on it, and for as much shade as we're throwing at it, I don't hate the visual look of this movie. I think it would have been cool if they would have built a cool movie around it, but I think, I think there is a cool visual style here. I just don't want to sit through this movie to, to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, then you should watch Batman and Robin. It is all of the, the weird yeah. parts of this movie turned up to 11. Like the visual language of that film is so much fun um, in a way that this one, so much of it gets like, there's, there's hints of it too. Like when they're sweeping through the skyline and you'll see like, Oh, there's like a big statue and there's like, there's some yeah. interesting things, but in, in Batman and Robin, like, there's this whole freeway system that is running through the city that is held up by giant statues and cuts, like, through and around buildings. Uh, and it's it's just so bizarre, but weirdly works um, in a way that I feel... And, and uh, the Batman and Robin uh, comparison I made earlier, I think, just like Jim Carrey knows what movie he's in here, I feel like Batman and Robin is a better movie because everybody in that movie understands... Like, it's ridiculous. Maybe Clooney showed up on set thinking it was something else. But they all shifted, and they all were, like, tonally appropriate for that movie. Yeah. And and they said, we're going to swing big, and we're going to probably miss, but we're at least going to swing. And that's where this movie failed for me. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we've gotten into it a little bit with the, uh, a little bit already, but it's time for our final thoughts where we say, is this movie worth revisiting or does it just sort of stay in the hall of memory? Mal, you brought this here. What are your final thoughts on the film? Yeah, um, in terms of revisiting, no. I mean, it was it was an interesting experiment to go back to something that I haven't seen for the longest time, and I do, and forever, no matter how boring, no matter how illogical, no matter how many times I ask why during the, the viewing of this film, it will forever kind of just be attached to that time mm. of, of my childhood, for better or worse. But uh, in terms of revisiting it, uh, yeah, it was it was it was fun to dive back into it. Maybe not so much fun actually watching it, but actually going back to it in the first place was pretty fun. Uh, revisiting it again in the future is probably not going to happen. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough, Phil. What do you think? No, I'll leave this thing. Leave this thing alone. Um, <laughs> I I was on uh, here earlier, and I brought Batman '89 on. And I remember my argument for 89 was this is sort of a uh, almost in the history of movies and the history of superhero movies. This is an important movie because this kicked off kind of a movement. But past 89, I don't think any of these sequels really hold a whole lot of water. And and this movie is just it's just not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's it's like I said, it's cool to look at. Uh but ultimately, I, I, it took me two sittings to get through this movie. I, I couldn't do it in one. I was so bored. And even then, I caught myself checking my phone a lot. And, and I don't like to do that. If a movie's holding my attention, I don't like to even acknowledge that my phone is in the room. But, like, uh, yeah, this movie was too much of a chore for me. I'm with you on that one. Um, I... Yeah, I remember 89 walking away being like, you know, what? I didn't love this movie, but I, I understand its importance and what it did for superhero films and historical importance, et cetera, et cetera. Batman and Robin it was like, this movie's stupid, but I had so much fun with it. This one is just, uh, it was a slog. It, uh, the parts of it that are fun are so minimal and few and far between that they are overshadowed by everything else. Uh, I also found myself at one point, I realized I had not been paying attention for maybe like full, you know, five minutes and went back and realized I had missed nothing in that time <laughs> that I had not been watching the film. Um, so I got through it, had a great time discussing it, won't be watching it again, um, unless someone else on a different podcast makes me, <laughs> in which point I might have to, I might have to fake sick on that week. Uh, so we'll see how that one plays out. That's what I've learned is never say never because someone will drag you on a podcast to yeah. talk about the movie you hate. Phil, you're just mad because you had to watch Jurassic Park 3. I am. I'm still really pissed at not that. Not even on this yeah. show. I just I know that you were not, <laughs> not happy. On this show, yeah. I will never forgive <laughs> Zenger for that. So, uh those are our thoughts, listening audience. We want to hear yours. Find us social media, hit me one more pod everywhere, or hit me one more time.com slash contact. You can find our email address and all the ways to reach us there. We want to hear from you, hear your thoughts on this movie, all the ways that we might be wrong, which I, I doubt we're going to have a lot of response on that front. Yeah, come at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to see the counter arguments. I really do. Mal, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. Where can people find you and see what you're up to? Absolutely. So you can find Dimed Out, the strange anthropological journey I'm taking, looking at weird and wonderful things on the internet and in real life. 
uh, on any podcast provider. Pretty much just search for Dimed Out. You can find me promoting Dimed Out and just being me uh, on Twitter and Instagram at I am Mal Foster. Excellent. Check it out. Phil, thanks for sitting in with us today. Happy to do it. Where can people find you? You can find me at philrude.com, and you can get all my social media handles from there. Uh, you can see what I'm up to art-wise, and you can check all the episodes for the podcast I do with my son, Austin, called The Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude. I almost forgot the name of my own show. <laughs> That's happened to me before. It, yes. <laughs> If people want to see what I'm up to, people can follow me, Davluz, as D-A-V-L-U-Z, Twitter, Instagram, find me there. Listening audience, thank you so much for tuning in today. We do this show for you. We do this show because of you. Remember, you can't move forward if you're always looking back. We'll see you next time. <laughs>